Joe presents TKO together with 32 Red. Welcome to round 17 of TKO here on Joe Together with 32 Red. We're a podcast and YouTube show with you every Thursday. I've got to be honest with you, I never ever thought I would be saying we are coming to you from Grand Central Station in New York City. You see this place in the films, but honestly, this just does not do it justice. This place is unbelievable. One of our cameramen uh, called it the Yankee Sistine Chapel, and he's not wrong. This is just such an iconic venue, and I cannot believe we're here. Over the next few days, we're going to be speaking to a number of people in the fight game. Of course, Anthony Joshua and Andy Ruiz are headlining at Madison Square Garden on Saturday night. Uh, we'll be catching up with promoter Lou DiBella, who's lived in New York all his life and promoted one of Carl Frampton's biggest fights against Leo Santa Cruz some three years ago now. We'll be speaking to Heather Hardy, who's in action in a couple of weeks' time as well. We'll be catching up with a number of fighters on the undercard for the Anthony Joshua Andy Ruiz fight. There is so, so much to look forward to in New York. I cannot wait to share it all with you. Welcome to round 17 of TKO. So we come to the Manhattan Diner in the Upper West Side, uh, where Carl and I are joined by two men whose voices you'll hear calling the action at MSG uh, on Saturday night. Sky Sports League commentator Andy Clark and the former British and European middleweight champion Matthew Macklin. You have come on our podcast. You've got your own Macklin's take. Is that on iTunes? It is. We've just come from a fairly interesting hour with Thomas Hauser, and uh, everybody got it, didn't they? <laughs> Boxing commissions, referees, judges, fighters, promoters, TV. Absolutely, no <laughs> it was great, yeah, it was really good. You have to manoeuvre yourself quite carefully these days in boxing with who you align yourself, your network or your promoter. For you, obviously this move with top rank is, is pretty crucial to success at featherweight because two of the top three guys are, are there. Yeah, of course, and, and as a boxer you have to do that, but um, why fighters shouldn't, if I was managing a young fighter, and you see it all the time, these young guys and they give... For example, if someone's with Frank Warren, they'll give Eddie Hearn grief or vice versa. You don't have to fall out with a rival promoter. Let the promoters do their jobs. You could be a free agent at some point where you may have to go and shake that promoter's hand and, and do a bit of ass-kissing or whatever. But it's important as a fighter to make the right moves. And for me, going with top rank, the fight that I want is Oscar Valdez at the minute. It's an easy fight to make, so I've almost been promised that. So that was a, a pretty sensible move. The problem we're getting, though, is is that these promotional divides are becoming, certainly from promoters and managers' point of view, sort of self-interested financially to the point where big fights are being are stopped being made because the marinating process is such that the longer you leave it, the, the more these fights are worth. And we're seeing it at the moment. And Andy, we were talking earlier, whether it's Al Heyman's fault, whether it's Eddie Hearn's fault, it doesn't matter whose fault it is, this Wilder Joshua thing is in danger of becoming the next Mayweather-Pacquiao, all because of self-interest from the people who, who aren't even fighting. Yeah, well, I mean, you've got promoters and networks, particularly promoters that are successful, most successful people, a lot of successful people, are control freaks, because I think, you know, control it and you know, the money will come. They're not thinking, I want to make X amount on this fight. They're thinking, I want to build my relationship with the network, I want to build, you know, the brand, the PBC, whatever it is. And so they're playing a bigger game than, you know, Wilder's thinking, uh, yeah, Joshua, I'm going to make X amount of million. But, you know, Al Heyman, for example, would be thinking the PBC and the future of the PBC and with, that's with Fox and building boxing up on Fox. And you know, so he's, he's playing a much bigger game than, than just Wilder and Joshua. They're just pawns on the chessboard. And, you know, it's important. And then you suppose you have a manager, Shelley Finkel, you know, he's probably aligned with Al Heyman. So you've got to see wh where are people coming from? What's people's ultimate agenda here? And I know if I'm a fighter, you want a manager that just cares about you and what's best for you. And then you also need a manager that's competent, and if he's competent, he's probably experienced, and he's probably got a few relationships in boxing. So I always think in an ideal world, you got, you're, kind of, you're co-managed by, kind of by a guy who's just for you, but you're also, he's in partners with someone that's 
maybe not just for you, but he's got the clout, he's got the experience. The thing with Wilder and, um, and Joshua is, it, I don't think it's anywhere near that point of being a Mayweather-Pacquiao. I mean, for example, the Canelo-Golovkin, I'm glad that it happened three years after it was meant to happen because it was a much bigger fight. And maybe Golovkin was on the slide, so it suited Canelo better. But in terms of a, a bigger fight, generating a lot more money for both guys, I think it happened at a pretty good time. It was in danger of going on a bit too long, but I think if it had gone a year beforehand, it wouldn't have uh, generated anywhere near the money that it did for both guys. Now, Mayweather Pacquiao was probably four or five years past its sell-by date, so I don't think Joshua Wilder's anywhere near that. But I think it's getting to the point of Canelo Golovkin. I do think that it does need to happen in within the next six to eight months. I don't think it will. I don't, 68 months, I don't think, I don't think you see that. Thing yeah, or, or next, you know, I think in the first quarter of next year, I would like to see it yeah, happen. Yeah, we'd all love to see it. I, I, I think that's... I hate to say it, I don't know why, but I just, I just feel like that's a couple of years away, that thing. I mean, you mentioned Canelo and Golovkin, and you talk about Canelo had a couple of nice decisions given his way in the build-up to that, because ultimately they knew that if those decisions hadn't gone that gone his way, it would have scuppered the, the value of Canelo Triple G. We saw the same thing with Felix Sturm and, and Oscar De La Hoya, for example, ahead of the Hopkins undisputed clash. Um, problem with Wilder, Andy, is every time he fights, he wins, but he looks like he's going to lose. And if he does lose at any point and he gets chinned, then the value of that fight just goes through the floor. Yeah, it does, and, and you, you, you take a risk every time you put any fighter in there. But I do like the fact that they've taken Lewis Ortiz. I know it's not what we want, but they've got that done quick. And he is the best available opponent out there, bar Dillian White maybe, that anybody could get. And Wilder's got him, so Joshua can't fight him next, and nor can Tyson Fury. So he's the one who's kind of leading the way on that score if you like, but his vulnerability, Wilder, is, is what makes him yeah. attractive. That's always been true of heavyweights, the fact that they're so huge, but when you see a big heavyweight kind of like list into the ropes or look like they're about to go down, it's one of the most dramatic things you'll see in, in all the sport. And Wilder, he's just got that X factor, and, and he always has had. You, we watch him against Brazil, and it's, it's crazy stuff. I mean, he, was hurt, he was hurt in, yeah, in 30 right. seconds moments after he, he hurt Brazil. And then it was all over 30 seconds after that. Yeah. Right now you've got Tyson Fury, who's probably, not probably, in my opinion, definitely the most naturally gifted, most talented, the cleverest out of the, the three top heavyweights. You've got Joshua, who's kind of the superstar, maybe best all around, uh, power, everything. But you've got Wilder, who's without doubt the most exciting. He is, he is can be hurt, he has got frailties but he's just got absolutely devastating, freakish, one-punch power. It's and it, difficult to call a winner in these fights. People keep asking all the time, and I, I like, it's always hard to call because they've all got different attributes that they could beat the other guy with. Like, AJ's the most athletic. He's got devastating power. He's a big lump. Wilder is really unorthodox, but can probably punch harder than AJ. And then Fury's a mover who can give both of these guys problems. We've seen he already did with Wilder so hard to pick a winner in these fights until we see them happening. But again, it comes back to the point that how far away we are from seeing that fight, that when Jarrell Miller popped for these three different substances and we're looking for an opponent at seven and a bit weeks' notice, even though we knew Deontay Wilder was in camp, he would have had the option of paying Dominic Brazil a big step aside fee with the money he would have made from an AJ fight. We didn't even consider that Deontay Wilder would be an opponent for AJ because we just knew it wasn't even going to no, happen. No, it's too complicated of a situation between the different networks, different promoters, 
and in fairness, a fight of that magnitude would take probably longer than six weeks to, to build it up properly and maximize, maximize the revenue. But I do think that's going to fight. That fight's going to happen sooner rather than later. I think it's going to happen in the first part of next year for the simple reason there's no one else left for them to fight. You know, they've pretty much eliminated each other. I think you know he fights Ortiz. I'd imagine that AJ fights Joshua um, Dillian White at the end of this year because again, who else is there? And then after that, it's like. Who are you going to fight? It's a bit of a myth as in other oh, heavyweight divisions fire. Yeah, the top five is, but after the top five, it's a pretty thin division. I think it's going to happen. I think I, I do believe that Wilder Joshua will happen in the I, first I half do, of next year. I do think as well that the, the press and the public and TV can have got to try and put the pressure on to make this happen. Yeah. You know, you look at what HBO did with with boxing in their kind of heyday, where they had a bit of a, a monopoly. And they would call the shots. They would say that's not good enough. They forced it a bit. Yeah, they would force it. They say, as well, close as we, we've been to having a UFC type model. Yeah, Quality control. Yeah. We have to call for these fights, and it, it might come down to the fact that player power, participant power. The, the fighters might have to say, "Look, I want this fight." Wilder and Joshua might have to say, "We want this fight." Now, you two teams, get it done. I'll tell you another thing that could happen. I mean, this pay per view now on Saturday night could bomb. You know, yeah, and if it does it bomb, happen, then. Yeah. It's going to show that, listen, the paying public, because that's what it comes down to as yeah. well at the end of the day, say, we ain't going to pay for second best. We want Wilder Joshua, and if we don't have Fury, and that mix as well. And if that doesn't happen, we just don't buy in it. Then it get made. Let's talk about Andy Ruiz then. A little bit of an unknown quantity outside of the sort of the hardcore fans, people who have seen him against Joseph Parker, and they talk about that fight. And it was a very close fight. In your digging, in your research, what do you kind of make of him as a, as a challenge to Joshua? More or danger less dangerous than someone like Alexander Povetkin? I would, say, I would say less because Povetkin has just got a better pedigree and a better all-round background. Ruiz, physically, I know we can talk about the fact that you can't judge a book by its cover and all the rest of it and he's fit to fight. He's not in shape and he clearly doesn't pay the price in the gym. I mean, he just doesn't, does he? It's a fact. He can still box and perform effectively looking like he does, but he would be better if he didn't look like that. Mm. He's got good quick hands, but he doesn't really have quick feet and he doesn't really move his head very much. Mm. So sooner rather than later, probably sooner, he'll be in a position where he's going to have to have it with Joshua. And I think he'll give it a really good crack, but I don't see any other outcome when that happens, other than him getting stopped pretty quick. Yeah, because he, he did say, he said, oh, I'm willing to take shots to get on the inside. Question is, against the calibre of he's faced so far compared to Joshua, can he actually take yeah, well, shots? that's the thing. We were getting hit by AJ, it's a different story completely, but. I think he's a good opponent for a stand-in after... I don't think they could have done any better. No, I think it's a good opponent and, and they've unfairly getting a bit of stick about this Ruiz coming in instead of Miller. But what do you do at, at this, this short notice? And it was offered to Ortiz as well, who's now, interestingly enough, taking a fight with Wilder, yeah. um, which raises its own suspicions But um, for serious money. But I think it's a good fight, but it's just a case of when AJ lands. I really think it could be a one-round job. I'm, I'm saying about three or four for AJ. This is, though, again, one of those problems with a late standing, especially when there's a lot on the line for the A side, so to speak. And we'll come on to him in a minute. Somebody like Callum Smith, when he had to fight Nicky Holskin on short notice when Jurgen Bremen pulled out in the Super Series last year, that for him, it wasn't so much about whether or not he was going to get past Nicky Holskin. I think we all knew he was going to deal with it quite comfortably. But because the pot of gold after that was so big in terms of the money against Groves, the title, it meant that he was kind of risk-averse. And we kind of saw the same thing probably with, with AJ against Takam as well, when he was came in to replace Pulev. That fight with Wilder and Fury and essentially Usyk, they're such big money fights for him that 
is there a chance we'll see him be a little bit more risk-averse like he was against Carlos Tackham? No, I don't think so. I think with Callum Smith, I think that's more down to the fact that that's tournament boxing. And you know that if you win that fight, you are going to fight in the final. Mm. That fight won't go away or go south because you didn't look good enough in your semi-final. You win your semi-final, you're in the final. When it's not that scenario, which, which it almost always isn't, then how good you look does matter. It's, it's not like people won't want to see him fight Wilder if he struggles through Rees, mm. but they'll want to see it more and the clamour mm. for it will be greater if he does a brilliant number on him. Absolutely. Right now, there's been, I mean, there's been a lot of talk for a long time, but it's pretty hot and heavy at the minute after Wilder sparking out Brazil because it was spectacular, it was devastating. It's like, wow, everyone thinks, can he do that to Joshua? You know, Joshua will, without doubt, feel a little bit of pressure to go out there and make a statement, but it's important from his <coughs> trainers, I don't know, Ron McCracken's instilling into him, you know, you know from an early age, don't look for the knockout because when you yeah. do, it never comes. When you just stick to your boxing, bang, it just comes. Mm. So if I was Robert McCracken, I'd, the thing I'd be drumming in most is just get your jab going. The knockout will come, but let it come. Don't look for it, don't force it. You're more likely to make a statement by, by trying not to make a statement. Yeah. Just go in there and box your normal fight. Mm. You know, that's what I'd be, I'd be really trying to drum that in. Cause a lot of the time, complacency or you know, looking to make a statement, that creeps in subconsciously, so you really got to work hard for that not to happen. I think he will. I, th I think McCracken will be doing that and, and saying exactly what, what Matthew said there, but I think it's somewhere in the back of AJ's mind, looking at what Wilder done last week, mm. he'll want to go and blow his guy away. Do you think there's any chance that if, if he does look substandard that that might help in making these other fights because you remember your fight against well, yeah. Gonzalez for example that made the fight against Quigg and Wilder may well have looked at Fury in his comeback fights and thought I'm sure he did thought he's had it this is a right this is a great time to fight yeah it. I think that's probably my fight against Quigg I was made off the back of a bad performance by me so potentially I, I don't think AJ's going to walk in and think <laughs> I'm going to maybe underperform here no, to get a fight with Wilder no. but um if sometimes it could be a blessing in disguise, if it's not a great performance, if it takes him maybe eight or nine rounds and he, he look, doesn't look great in the early you know, parts of it, potentially then we could see a, a Wilder fight. That's exactly what happened with me and Felix Sturm. The fight before Felix Sturm had a, a defence of European title against a guy called Ruben Moran from Spain. Been stopped in, I think, six or seven rounds by Sebastian Zibic, who's a good boxer but not a puncher. And I definitely thought I was going to knock him out three, four, five rounds, something like that, ten days before the fight. Ended up catching a, a chest infection on the way back. I was going to pull out of the fight, seeing how it was going, it was, it was getting less and less, I was coughing up phlegm the whole week of the fight. And I suppose from a, I trained hard for the fight, but compl I was complacent. I was looking past Ruben Brown in the sense that I thought, oh, you know what, mm. I'll stop him in four, five, six rounds and the chest infection won't be a factor. But I remember we had a bit of a trade-off in like the second or third round. I thought I was weak as a kid and he caught me a left up or got on the eye, eye closed. And what should have been a routine European title has become a hard, hard fight. And I had to dig in and I got the win, unanimous decision. But it was a, it was a bad performance and I remember the write-up afterwards, he's Macklin's best days behind him. So I know Sturm had been looking at me for a while. I was European champion. I was ranked in the top five, Ring Magazine type thing because they'd, they'd sussed me out on a, you know, about six, seven months before in terms of money and that. And uh, they didn't go for me. They went for, I think, Giovanni Lorenzo or someone who it was. So they obviously was looking at me. And I think after that performance, because yeah. Sturm had beaten this guy on points too, I went and thought, yeah, he'll be a good name, big name, <coughs> not what he was. Let's go for it. And that's why I got that opportunity. A bit like Carl said there with yeah, the Gonzalez right, yeah. one, mm. he took the quick point. So sometimes 
it wasn't your intention, but it actually probably worked out in the end mm. because of it. We'll see how it works out on Saturday night. Anthony Joshua against Andy Ruiz defending the WBA, WBO and IBF World Heavyweight titles. And we caught up with him earlier on today to get his thoughts ahead of Saturday. Yeah, thank you very much, big man. What's this all doing? Joe. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm doing a, I'm doing a podcast with, with Joe. How are you? That's smart. Just a couple of questions. First question I wanted to ask you was, I've been on the deck before as a yeah. fighter and I felt like I learned a lot in that fight. Yeah. You were on the deck against Klitschko. Yeah. What have you learned from that fight and that experience? <laughs> You know when it's a slugfest though, it wasn't even like a technical fight where he just caught me with a, I don't know, it was weird, it was just a slugfest, so one of those ones where I had to go down in it to get up to fight back, but what I learned is that um, I was too top heavy as a heavyweight, I was doing a lot of weights, so I couldn't carry my body properly and learn how to pace myself throughout the rounds, and also last year I said to my coach, I said look, if I have another one of these fights, I'm done with boxing, I said I should be good enough that I don't have to go through like hell and back to win a fight. It should be like a good competition, but I shouldn't have to go through one of those fights to win. And there are the three things. Don't be too top heavy, stay loose, control myself throughout each round, don't gas out. And I need to improve because I can't have too many of these fights if I want to win. With um, Wilder looking so good last week, one round knockout, how important is it for you not only to win, oh, but man. also to look good? <laughs> yeah, I do need to. That's what I'm saying, like, Wilder looked unbelievable. Boom! You know, Brazil's a big man as well, so to, to knock him out takes some real power. And, like, the comparisons right now in the division is, is, is hard because I'm a completely different fighter to Wilder. I want to go in there, I like breaking down my opponents, looking at where the gaps are. He's a bit more, you know, just go in there and try and knock him out. So I do want to take him out, but also, if, if it doesn't happen, I think looking good is important as well. So I want to go in there and just show how, how good I am. Yeah. Okay, and what's, what's next after this win? After this win? God willing, I win. I want to sit down with Fury and see what it'll take to make the fight because Wilder's fighting Ortiz. And as a fan of the sport, look, it would be easy to go and fight Joe Bloggs next five times and try and sell out an arena, but I just feel like I'm robbing myself. So I want to challenge myself with the likes of Fury or Wilder. So I'm going to sit down. I'm going to try and get a meeting with Fury now and see um, if I win Saturday, what it will take to get this fight made. Andy Joshua there speaking to us uh, ahead of Saturday night. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of boxing. Luckily enough, you have boxed there yourself. Carl, you box in New York as well. Just want to talk a little bit about that stateside fighting experience. When was the first time you went to boxing in the States? So I fought in Atlantic City and Philadelphia back in 2005. There were eight rounders on the undercards of other fights. But, you know, it was, I think, when you're boxing as a kid, or even as a young pro, you, you know that the big fights were in America, Las mm. Vegas, New York, and I remember all staying up till two or three in the morning, which was, and always dreamed of boxing in America. So it was a different experience coming over a week or two before, staying in accommodation or hotels or whatever, being in the, the casino or, or wherever the fight was. And it was a, a great experience. And you know, I think even the amateur days set you up to that a little bit, but I think in the pro game coming over to America, because that's where all the big fights were, it was, uh, yeah, brilliant, brilliant experience. And a lot of the, the venues, I mean, we, we've done our fair share of covering the amateurs and you go to some quite gritty sort of Eastern European towns, it's not particularly glamorous. When you first go stateside, somewhere like New York or Atlantic City, is there a feeling of, finally, I've kind of made it or I've cracked it? I probably, when you... The Americans look at British fighters as nothing until they come and do something in the States and they perform out here. And it's probably a little bit unfair, but that's... That's the way the world works. And, and for me, my first fight in the States was in El Paso. It was on a 
done a matinee show, so I fought local time at three o'clock. Chavez Jr. was on the evening show, but I headlined the matinee show, which was shown on ITV back home. But it was, I don't know, they were giving tickets away. There was probably a thousand people there. Not a lot of people, but I just I felt this is this is great. Just just being in America for me was was something special, and um, and obviously New York and Vegas were a little bit more special than that one. But once you get over here and you start winning big fights, that's when you know you're you've done pretty well for yourself. They were talking today about the pressure on people like Callum Smith, Casey Taylor, Josh Boatsy, some of the young people going over boxing in the states. <laughs> Do you feel that pressure and expectation more if it's in a kind of iconic fighting city? I was speaking to Katie Taylor today and asking her about. The pressures that it, I know she's, she's fought in big builds before, but she's so much expectation on her. People just expect her to win. That's a, that's the win. Sorry, that's a different type of pressure, and it's always on her shoulders. But she can deal with it, and she's dealt with it before. But coming here, I know someone like Tommy Coyle, who's on the bill, never ever imagined to be fighting in Madison Square Gardens, and he's right up for it. I think that you're going to see the performance of Tommy Coyle's career. So, in a way, that could be a, a positive a impact on him but Callum Smith someone again who's expected to beat in Hassan Amdam but he's in the mecca it brings its own pressures and it's, a, it's yeah yeah I think you know obviously those, those two fights I had back in 2005 in Philly and Atlantic City they were eight round fights against you know opponent type opponents um, when I fought in Madison Square Garden against Sergio Martinez oh. it was a pound for pound it was on HBO it was a world title Paddy's Day, then you had Golovkin on Foxwoods, and those were different fights. Obviously, um, had thousand people come over for the Martinez fight from Ireland and, and, and Birmingham. So, and I was an underdog for those fights, so I probably didn't have that pressure. But I had my own pressure, could have my own expectations, and uh, you know your own hopes and dreams, and, and, and what you expect of yourself, and, and where a win can take you. And you know, at that stage in my career as well, it was um, you know how much rebuilding have you got? I suppose when you lose, if you're losing a how do you lose? Like when I lost to Martinez, my stock probably went up in defeat. So it wasn't a step back, it was probably a step sideways because then I had a win and Golovkin. But, you know, someone like Carl said, two very different uh, situations in Tommy Coyle, who, like you say, he's, he's already massively exceeded his own expectations he had th through his career. Now he's in Madison Square Garden against Algeria. It's a win win for him, really, mm. where you've got Callum Smith, who's coming off a fantastic win over George Groves, fighting a guy. Hassan Adam, who was a good fighter five years ago at middleweight, yeah. so Callum's would probably feel under pressure to perform really well, not just win. From a, my own personal experience, whenever I focused on performing well, I performed terribly. When I just, mm. when, I just focused, when I was in a fight where I just wanted to win, I performed well. You know, it was like, do you know what I mean? It was yeah. the, the different pressure. So, um, be interesting to see how Callum performs. I was talking to Boatsy a few weeks ago about, yeah, he was saying he's acutely aware of what fighters sometimes say after retirement, they look back and say, I wish I'd enjoyed that moment more, I wish I'd taken in that. And, and we, try, we kind of had a conversation about making sure you're present and being in that moment. But I guess also, you don't want to conflict. You have to stay pretty focused and switched on during a fight. And if you're taking too much in and enjoying it too much, that itself might impact your performance. Yeah, of course. And the the build-up and, and walking around the city, that's when you get the buzz and the, and the weigh-ins, the big crowds of weigh-ins, etc. But in the fight, it doesn't matter if you're fighting... In a leisure centre somewhere, or Madison Square Gardens. It, for me, it's, it's it's probably the same thoughts going through your head. You want to win the fight. I don't think the performance will be too different. I don't know. Maybe I'm contradicting myself and what I say about Tommy Coyle a minute ago. But no, I think I know what you're saying. When you're walking around the week of a fight, you're in New York. You're soaking it up then because you can. You're not being relaxed with your team. 
when you walk into that ring, whether you're in a leisure centre in Madison Square Garden, the it's same on. thoughts are the same. You're that, that focused on the fight, you're almost oblivious. Mm. Now I remember going into against Sergio because it was. I remember. I remember consciously thinking beforehand. I know I was going to be nervous. I know I'm going to be focused. I know it's going to be the same mindset. But I did think to myself, right, I'm going to take a moment to soak it up. Only a moment, because that's all you got. Because the next thing you're in the ring, and then jobs on the thing. But I, I remember there's a there's a woman, and she was the whip for HBO, and she used to like crack the whip and get in the ring and all that. And I thought I'm just going to blank her. You know what I mean? And I ain't getting. Well, it's your moment, isn't it? I'm having my 30 seconds, but that's all I got. It's 30 seconds, because then once I start walking, I'm in the ring. You know, then it doesn't matter where you are. You're that focused on the fight and everything else. You enjoy those moments retrospectively. Yeah. At the time, you're too focused. You're listening to TKO on Joe together with 32. We have me, Chris Lloyd, and Carl Frampton. You can download and subscribe via the usual channels. Now, though, here's Nick Bright and Graham Swan with news from something else from Joe. Nice one, guys. Swanee's Cricket Show, then. What is it all about? Well, it's a new podcast from Joe with me, Nick Bright, and the man himself, Graham Swan, because it would be so weird if you weren't here and we called it that. Good point. And it's going to be great. We've got all the biggest names. We've got the best games. Ashes, World Cup, inside gossip, all the scoops. It's got everything. Uh, and also some stories from you, I'm hoping. Absolutely. I'm going to bring... I'm throwing people under the bus. All of you. You won't sleep in your beds, Jimmy. <laughs> Cookie. Brody. Good <laughs> luck, lads. He's calling them out. Uh, right, remember to subscribe to this because we're coming at you every single week. But we should let the nice people get back to their podcast now. Yeah, sorry about the ambush. Cheers, lads. Well, you can catch Swanee's Cricket Show, episode one, available now on Joe. Back here with Andy Clark, Matt Macklin and Carl, as always. One of the, the criticisms lodged against um, Callum Smith is he's had a lot of time out since the Super Series. But think about it. What, what would you want as a minimum for a championship fight? A 12-week 12 12 camp? 12 weeks long. I, I like 12-week camps, but they're pretty long. Uh, I know guys that have eight weeks. They, they keep taking over. So Depends where you are, doesn't it? It depends yeah. on your fitness like going in, you, how long you've boxed. I know he's been out for a while. 12 weeks, I don't know. Maybe... You, a month doing a bit of something training and maybe eight weeks then proper full steam ahead. He's had so he had essentially three back-to-back camps for the World Boxing Super Series all in 2018 so a minimum 30 to 35 weeks in camp alone out of 52. Mm. He's then basically finished in October and if you backdate this two and a half months that takes you to the middle of April. So he's only really had six and a half months out and he's just become a dad as well. Yeah, he's and, earned that time. And, he, and he's, uh, Callum's a good liver you know he doesn't yeah. have any bad habits. You couldn't be yeah. could you at that height no. and that weight? No, exactly. I mean, I needed 10 weeks. <laughs> I didn't live the life in between, so you know, I needed every day of 10 weeks where Callum doesn't have any bad habits, lives the life. So, and like you say, he's been very active. So probably, sometimes less is more. Maybe the rest will do him good. It'll recharge the batteries, re-motivate him. And uh, you know, hopefully this, is, this, this fight is fight one of a nice series of fights for him now. So Callum Smith defending his WBA super middleweight title against Hassan and Dam on the undercard uh, as chief support to Anthony Joshua. Um, we caught up with him earlier on today. Yeah, I feel good. Camp was good. We always had a rough idea when we were going to be fighting. It wasn't just sprung on me out the blue. We were obviously talking as a team and I feel good. I'm looking forward to walking the ring as a world champion and you know, successfully defending them. Obviously, you're the number one super middleweight on the planet at the minute. You have a fight at the weekend which you can't overlook, but who's the ideal opponent next? I want big fights. No, you know yourself. I just want big names and unification fights. Obviously, I'm not looking past Hassan and Dan the weekend, but take care of business then, and we'll sit down with the team and see what fights best. But I want, I want the bigger fights that motivate me and make me want to go to the gym and make me want to better myself. And what threats do you think he brings? He's a good mover. He's got good feet movement, and you no, know, he'll try and make it as difficult and awkward for me as possible to tag him. But I've got to just stay patient and land when I can and take advantage of it. Good man. Will you allow yourself to watch the match? 
yeah, I watch in the daytime, I'll switch off, and I like to switch off from boxing fight day anyway, so I'll go and watch the match with my brothers, and hopefully we can have a Liverpool double. TKO, together with 32 Red. Okay, so looking to secure the last belt at uh, lightweight WBC against Delphine Persoon. She's done a hell of a lot for, for women's boxing, women's sports since turning over. I mean, she's just dragged the amateur game by the scruff of the neck in 2012. But the impact she's made on the pros is arguably just as good. Yeah, she's done everything in good style since she turned professional, basically. And her and Clarissa Shields have really delivered. I mean, Shields is undisputed champion at middleweight after just nine fights, had a couple of world titles at super middleweight. And Katie's had to chase Delphine Pursuit around the block a bit. But that's, that's just good business by Pursuit's people because they were happy to wait until she was the final piece of the jigsaw. And they, they're making the right noises about how they think that they can win. I've only really seen one fighter who mm. I genuinely <laughs> believe thought she could win against Taylor, and that was Jessica McCaskill. Yeah. And she's gone on and done well since. She's got a lot of self-belief. The others kind of came to give it a crack, but I don't think they really thought they could win. So it'll be interesting to see Pursuit on the ring walk and see whether she really thinks she can win or not. Because I think you can tell, generally, when you see someone on the ramp in a big fight, huge stage, way bigger, so much bigger than anything she's been involved in before, I think that could tell you a lot. Mm. She's a, a police officer. Yeah, she's got a really interesting story. She's a police officer. Uh, she never takes a day off because she uses all her days off to train and take time off to, to build up for camp. None of her family are here. Her dad is having a joint 55th birthday party with his twin brother the day after the fight on June the 2nd. That was set months ago before this fight was set. Uh, and her mum, when she heard about the fight, was fuming because she's going to miss the party. Um, <laughs> so none of the family are coming out. It's not on national TV in Belgium. She trains out of a tiny gym um, off a motorway in the northwest of Belgium. Um, it's like a kind of small barn. There's like 44 fighters fighting out of there. It's, it's legitimacy is what she's after because it's just not really recognised as a, as a sport even in Belgium. And she's a long-reigning long world champion. Mm. But, but this will be only be the second time she's boxed outside of... Belgium and it's impossible to explain just how much she's never been on anything even like a York Hall show yeah which is crazy yeah. isn't it given, given she's going from that to this mm. stage but the matron boys were out with her a couple of weeks ago and, and Scott Hamilton said he said she's just got this laid back attitude to it in that there, there is no pressure on her she might be the champ but she said listen if I lose this I can go back to my day job and I've got my life set up as it is it makes very little difference to me of course it will if she wins but she, she said Quite literally, I don't feel any pressure, and all of it is on Katie Taylor. And given Katie's trajectory, everything she's done, there will be more pressure than she's ever had in her career, and that's including two Olympic Games, an Olympic final, and three world title fights so far. Without a doubt, all the pressure's on Katie Taylor. You know, she's, uh, this has all been geared up for her to become undisputed lightweight champion, and I think she will do. I think that'll happen. Um, for soon, I think, is probably one of the more certainly awkward opponent that Katie's fought. She's big and strong as well. But I just don't see anyone beating Katie Taylor at lightweight and that's that's just how I see it. I think she's gifted. I think she's a one off. And uh, I don't know, she doesn't even seem to even pressure it's just it's just another thing to her. She just takes it in a stride and uh, she's, she's always it. been under pressure because mm. she's always had massive expectations of herself and she's she's been a star for years now. So she's always been under pressure. Yeah. It's just another thing to her. Mm. I expected upon another brilliant performance. We were caught up with her earlier on today. Let's get her thoughts ahead of Saturday. I'm ready to go now. All the hard work is on. And I had um, a really tough, uh, say, three-month camp. I only took a week off after the last fight against Rose Volante. So I was straight back in, into, into camp for this fight. I'm 
there's so much expectations and you all, people just expect you to win. Does that bring its own pressure? Yeah, it's all the same for me. I mean, uh, I think there's pressure in every single fight for me, so this, this fight is no different, but I understand the magnitude of this fight and how big it is and how big the event actually is as well. Um, but these are the fights I've always wanted. I think pressure is a privilege, really, and uh, to be in this position is, is amazing. So the winner of that one will be the undisputed uh, lightweight champion of the world Saturday night at Madison Square Garden. Fight of the night, potentially, for Josh Kelly. Ray Robinson, again, a bit of an unknown quantity, one of Dave McWhorter's fighters. He's got a solid stable tier for him, Lopez, Ivan Branchik, Brian Chabalo, a number of good prospects and champions. And he knows talent when he sees it. At 33 as well, Ray Robinson, it's kind of do or die for him, isn't it? I think this is a big step up for him. I do believe he's a really talented fighter. And he has, it is backed up by his amateur pedigree. It's not just some guy, you know what I mean? He's Anthony Yard, not going into the Yard situation, but <laughs> he's looked really good against nobody. You know, now, Josh Kelly's looked really good against, yeah, almost probably no, no one of any great note, but nah, he was a really good amateur, so the pedigree kind of backs up the hype that he's shown so far, albeit against a lower-level opposition as a professional. But this fight, I believe, is a big step up for him. And I've heard how good he's looked in the gym, and people whose opinion I value said, nah, trust me, he can fight. So I'm, I'm really looking forward and, and excited to see how he performs, because I'm really sure, he, I'm very confident that he'll win it, but I'm, I'm looking for a big performance from him to kind of warrant the hype. I think this one is one where people actually, although he's looked apart in his career so far, yet without having boxed any terrific names, but this is a one where people mm. potentially will sit up. Yeah. If he wins the fight and go, kid yeah. can fight. Mm. And I think the hype around him, and people talk about him, you know, maybe not... The, the opponents, he hasn't fought anyone, why has he got this hype? And he gets a little bit criticised as well by fans. It's it's probably to do with his style and his flashiness. And I remember being a kid, although he was an amazing fighter, I hated Nas, who was an amazing fighter, but because of the flashiness. And some people just don't like that. Josh Kelly is a very, very flash fighter, but he sure can't fight. I genuinely believe he's a quality fighter. And I guess the... the the acid test is if the flashness and the footwork and the braggadocio, if it works against opponents of a higher level, then people will probably be willing to forget some of the kind of you know stuff at the beginning of his career. Yeah, I mean that's that's what it is. People like were like that, like Carl said about Naz. I know a lot of people. Like my dad's kind of like, couldn't stand Naz when he was coming through, hated him. But then eventually, you know, when he started when he beat Steve Robinson and he started beating all these other guys at a world level, it was like, mm, okay, then fair enough. <laughs> You know, there was a bit of that then. So, before we go, pick of the nights for you guys, what are you looking forward to the most? I'm looking forward to the opening fight, Tommy Coyle against Chris Algieri. Mm. The, the top of the bill will be great because the sense of occasion around it and the atmosphere inside the garden when they, when they take to the ring will be tremendous, but I'm really looking forward to Algieri against Coyle. Definitely that one because I think Tommy Coyle's always in great fights and I, and, and I know win, lose or draw, it's going to be exciting. Uh, looking forward to seeing Kelly with his you know, first big step up. And of course, Katie Taylor. Tommy Coyle for me, knowing him, and I'm actually going to be in the corner with him. First time I've ever been in the corner of a fighter. Not a bad place to start, Madison Square Garden. Yeah. So, Tommy Algieri, Katie Taylor become an undisputed champion. I think the Josh Kelly fight as well is a real, it's probably the hardest fight to call on the bill. I know a lot of people think that Josh, Josh Kelly's going to win this pretty comfortably. I think he'll win the fight, but I think it's going to be a hard fight for him. And then, First time actually seeing AJ in the flesh as well, up close and personal, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that.
Good man. Well, Andy, Matt Cole, as always, thanks for your company. Uh, wet the appetite very nicely for a big night on Saturday night. Anthony Joshua headlining at Madison Square Garden. You've been listening to TKO on Joe. Together with 32 Red.